Welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Nino Scalia. Our website is jmp.princeton.edu, and our Twitter handle is at Madison Program. It's great to have you with us. Our guest today is Wilfred M. McClay. He is the G.T. and Libby Blankenship Chair in the History of Liberty at the University of Oklahoma. From 2002 to 2013, he served on the National Council on the Humanities and is currently serving on the U.S. Semi-Quincentennial Commission, which is planning for the 250th anniversary of the United States, which will be observed, of course, in 2026. Among his books is The Masterless, Self and Society in Modern America, which won the 1995 Merle Curtie Award of the Organization of American Historians for the best book in American intellectual history. We have him here in studio today to discuss his new book, Land of Hope, An Invitation to the Great American Story. Bill McClay, welcome. Thank you, Nino. It's great to be here. Now, not far from here is the Princeton Library, and there are shelves and shelves and shelves of books tons of American history books, American history textbooks. So why did you write Land of Hope? <laughs> to contribute to the pile. No, I, um, well, part of the problem is that enormous pile um, is, uh, it's, it's, it's the difference between, um, how can I put it? You know, you can have a pile of rocks and you can have a cathedral. <laughs> uh, we have a pile of rocks so far as our general accounts of American history is concerned, uh, are concerned. Uh, um, we have uh, uh, we have many specialized, often quite brilliant uh, scholarly studies, excavations, if you will, in, in this area or that. But what we've lacked for quite a while now is an overarching narrative of the of, of this country and <clears throat> one that has that draws away from, tries to take a more aerial view of, uh, of, of the, the, the larger structure of that history and, uh, and help make sense of it in a way that's useful to citizens and particularly to young people who are growing up in this country and who we, whom we are presumably preparing for, uh, for citizenship. Uh, that, that's, and so some of the selectivity of the book um, I think can be uh, accounted to that uh, that view that this is really a uh, a tool of civic education. I should say, you know, if I hadn't made it already clear that it's really primarily written to be a textbook mm. for advanced high school students. I, I really had in mind my ideal reader was a, a young person about to take the AP U.S. history exam, and <clears throat> that this would be a something that would help prepare them in a larger way, with a larger sense of the narrative of, of the American past. So it is, uh, it is a kind of textbook, and, uh, and even the trim size is even more like that of a textbook than a trade book. Uh, and I was influenced in part by uh, the, the state of the existing textbooks, which I think is, is pretty bad. I think uh, one of the things that I expected to find when I started looking at them was uh, a lot of uh, ideological bias and 
And there is some of that, although actually not as much as you might think. Hmm. Um, particularly, I, I think it begins uh, in the 1960s, but before that, not too much. Um, but what I did notice is they were unreadable. They were just simply unreadable. Right. And um, so I've tried to make my book readable <laughs> and uh, to have a nice narrative flow to it, which has mean, meant leaving out a lot of things. Um, and that's painful. Um, I'm surprised so far I haven't gotten much criticism for that. I, it may be uh, coming. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, um, it's, it's hard to, to uh, be comprehensive and be... Uh, a readable, you know, those of us who liked, I was, as a kid, I liked reading encyclopedias, but that was a weird <laughs> sort of taste, nerdy taste. Uh, most of us don't right. like reading encyclopedias. And, and uh, so I really tried to make this, as the subtitle of the book says, uh, a, a narrative, a story. Um, uh, and uh, the, the large overarching story of what really is we often, I think, forget it, a really remarkable mm. moment in human history, the, the, the time of this nation's existence. And so I, I, I try to connect <clears throat> that story with uh, the European past. Uh, I try to give weight to the ways in which the United States has been, uh, has, has been a leader for the world. But I'm also very, very um, assiduous about uh, pointing out our faults, our, our, our great national faults, uh, um, slavery, Indian removal, uh, in general, the whole history of the way we have dealt with the, the indigenous populations. I don't, I don't leave any of that out. Uh, I think it's important to, uh, but it's important to see those things not as being the whole story um, as the sort of 1619 project of the New York Times That's would right. have it. That's right. But, but uh, uh, of, of great importance, but not the central fact. Um, uh, the central fact, I think, of American history is the American founding and the, the, the ways in which it was a departure from all other uh, re new regimes in human history and uh, the way it enshrined natural rights uh, and self-rule, uh, republicanism, uh, as uh, fundamental principles of governance. You talked about the sorry state of textbooks, especially on Mar American history. How did we get there? Oh, how did we get to the sorry state of textbooks? I think um, there's a lot of factors. I actually think, uh, in some ways, uh, the historical profession is not as much to blame for this as some people say. Hmm. I, I think, actually, university professors, um, although they're 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 happy to have to be involved with textbooks to the extent of of having their names on the cover right. and, and collecting uh, royalties, um, they're not all that involved. And I think this is increasingly the case in the production of them. I, I have a a good friend who's a mole at uh, one of the large textbook <laughs> publishers tells me how how the sausage is made and a lot of it is done internally a lot of it has to do with um, uh, the responding to the uh, desires or perceived desires anticipating the desires of groups that are 
politically um, energized uh, to um, try, try to affect uh, the, the presentation of their cause, whatever it may be, in textbooks. So there's a, a responsiveness to um, stakeholders and interest groups right. and uh, identity politics and all of that at play. So uh, uh, I think it's they're very uh, sort of politically inflected commercial products rather than reflecting the seasoned uh, uh, understanding of the past as filtered through the consciousness of one or more uh, uh, historian. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, this is not, we're not, Hen Henry Adams's great history of the United States and the Jefferson and Madison administrations. We don't, we don't have anybody doing anything like that. Mm -hmm. Even the uh, textbook that Samuel Eliot Morris and, and uh, Henry Steele Cometer did uh, uh, back in, I can't think it was the 50s or, the, or early 60s because they have the Kennedy selection in there. Um, uh, you know, that, that maybe was the last of the great uh, textbooks. And I wouldn't want to go back to that. It's, uh, there are all kinds of things wrong with it, but, or ways in which it's been rightly superseded among which is it's too big you know we need right. we needed something shorter that's something i set out to do with land of hope and uh partly succeeded and not i didn't succeed as well as i wanted to succeed <laughs> i wanted to have a book of 300 pages and it's uh more like 400 and some uh so uh it it it's uh and it's hard to see how i could have made it any shorter than i right. did so uh, it is what it is, but I, I think it's much preferable uh, in a lot of ways. I can't be the judge in my own case, but I think it's it's much less expensive. Uh, you can get it for you know under thirty dollars. Um, uh, you it's it's more compact. It's more crisp reading. I the the teachers who have used it. I just got an email this morning from a AP teacher in. Uh, South Carolina, who was enthusing about how well it's it's going. Oh, I, wonderful! I, I met him at a teacher's wonderful. conclave in Rochester, and he got a copy of the book. And he uh, so uh, and there are a, a couple dozen people I've heard from who are using the book uh, in with AP and and uh, to great uh, to great good effect. So you say your objective in writing this book, and I'm quoting you here, is to offer to American readers, young and old alike, an accurate, responsible, coherent, persuasive, and inspiring narrative mm -hmm. account of their own country, an account that will inform and deepen their sense of the land they inhabit and equip them for the privileges and responsibilities of citizenship. Now, most of those words, I, th I think we think, well, of course, a history textbook mm -hmm. should be accurate and responsible and coherent and persuasive, but inspiring. Yes. Tell me about the importance of our story being inspiring and telling yes. it in such a way. Well, you know, one thing you we, we have tried to get away from uh, for whatever reasons that we, what we cannot get away from is that a civic education, part of a civic education, you know, it's not just learning how a bill becomes law. It's not just... Uh, um, you know, dealing with the, the nuts and bolts of the machinery of American um, uh, political life, local and regional and national. It's also uh, inevitably uh, involves 
um, helping the young, help, nudge them, train them for, in the direction of affection for the place in which they live. Uh, one of the nicest things anybody said about the book, I, I unfortunately wasn't there to hear it, but I heard about it secondhand, <laughs> it came from the late Roger Scruton, uh, who, um, to whom I sent a copy of the book, and he um, uh, never got around to writing me back about it, although, well, he did a brief email, but um, uh, he said, uh, and a friend was there, that, uh, that he very much liked the book because he said it presents... Uh, let me see if I can get this right. It's in his sort of Henry Jamesian style. <laughs> uh, um, it presents an account of the American, uh, the, uh, the American past, that a young person, to which a young person might be uh, willing, and even eager to attach himself or herself. Hmm. I, I think that gets it right. Um, uh, more or less, it, it, and it's that sense of of attachment, or as Roger might have put it in another context, membership. That um, civic education is an education in membership. What it means to be part of this thing, of uh, this nation, and of the constituent parts of it. You know, we all inhabit some particular place, and, and that's where we are. Our citizenship really is grounded. Um, so I think, yes, inspiring because uh, it, it has to, um, you know, we are, we are all about a, a, a consent in this land. Um, and it, of course, we don't consent to be born and we don't consent to be born in a particular place, but we, can, we, we uh, need to consent to the conditions of our birth, the, con the conditions uh, of citizenship. To be a citizen is to, to embrace that status not merely to just sort of take it on mindlessly, to be fully a citizen. So, um, so yeah, I, I do not think uh, inspiring is a small part of that. I think people need uh, to feel some kind of connection with um, the, the, the larger and longer story of the place that they inhabit. I think that's a real human need because what we need as humans is, is meaning. We, we don't just need material well-being, although that's very, very nice <laughs> to have, very, very nice. But, but if it has no meaning and if it's part of a, of a, a sort of mindless succession of unrelated and, and purposeless events um, uh, that, or that basically stem out of a Darwinian uh, understanding of our place in the scheme of things, then... Uh, it's it's not very sustaining, uh, and it certainly isn't. Doesn't provide to get really to the nub of the matter. It doesn't provide us with the the equipment that we need to be a cohesive people, to act together for the common good. Uh, if we have no conception of our commonality, and our commonality is not just a matter of adherence to certain abstract principles, it's something we've walked through over a period of, of now centuries. And uh, um, it stu stu study of history for young people ought to be in part um, an introduction to all of that. I, I, I call my book uh, an invitation to the great American story. And, and, I, and it really is in inviting them in, saying this is, this is yours. This is yours, you, you know, if, if, if you want it, if you're able to embrace it, you, this is yours. Um, warts and all, 
just as with families, we don't, uh, um, you know, we we do, we don't well, we do, we try to disown people and and <laughs> keep them out of the family reunion or whatever. But it's a, really a feudal thing. If you're really a family, you you make allowances, and and the, the the sense of being a family is larger. Now, I don't generally think of nations as being like families, but the analogy for this purpose, I think, works pretty well. Let's talk a little bit about nations. Uh, you say you don't like to think about them as families, but nationalism is all the rage right now. Oh, yeah, talking yeah. About it. And I, I heard you say elsewhere that, and I want to get this right, America um, is an idea with a people, but it's also a people with an idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe explain to us how we ought to think about nationalism. I, did I say that? That's very well said. <laughs> I, I, very I don't nice remember ever saying that, but, <laughs> but I like it. Um, uh, yeah, I think... Th- th- you can't divorce the idea of America from the story of America, but you can't, you also can't. And, and what I mean by that is that we, yes, we have certain ideas, the declaration of independence in particular, the preamble puts forward, you know, in ringing tones for which Jefferson should be forever honored, um, a view of, of, uh, of, the, of human dignity, of the, the uh, constituent elements of human dignity and the right relationship of people to the institutions that govern them. Um, and this has been an inspiration all over the world. Uh, it has, uh, uh, it's, 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 it's one of the things that the Declaration and the American flag have been at the forefront of the freedom movements in China and, and Hong Kong. Right. Um, even unto the present moment, as you and I are talking, these things are happening. Uh, so um, there is uh, a sense of the American idea. Lincoln gave a great speech in which he talked about how uh, German immigrants, uh, um, this was somewhere during the campaign against Douglas uh, uh, in Illinois, but um, that um, uh, German immigrants couldn't look back to the the great patriots of 76, you know, the American Revolution, and say, those, those, those were my grandfathers. But when they look at the Declaration of Independence, they see them, they can see themselves and their Americanness in that, mm-hmm. in that document. So even though the bloodlines don't trace back, the idea lines do trace back. So that's one way in which the American idea is larger uh, than... Um, the whole question of American Americanness, uh, but uh, it is also uh, um, uh, a, a, a people. Stay away from the word nation for the moment. A country um, that is uh, made cohesive not just by these principles, but by uh, shared memories and memories, especially of suffering. Suffering, shared suffering, is one of the great bonds. Of uh, of a people, and that's one reason we have so many war memorials all over the place. Is that, that they are meant to commemorate uh, our times of shared suffering, uh, and so we 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 remember uh, uh, we remember particular places, particular achievements that are precious to us because they are ours. And I think to think of American patriotism as solely an affection for certain abstract principles without any affection for these specific things mm. is uh, is to misconstrue American patriotism. By the same token, though, 
I think to think that it's simply the history of we we Americans, you know, <laughs> well, you know what we did and uh, why, you know, why why we're so superior in in various ways to other people, um, without any reference to the to these foundational principles that are universal in character that we believe are universal in character. Um, that's equally mistaken to do that. So, um, and I, I, I try to lay this out in the last chapter of Land of Hope, which is a, really an epilogue um, that uh, we, with the American idea and the American story are entwined with one another. Uh, and you can't really have one without the other. That for, uh, for us to abandon our sense of ourselves as being in some way the product of these principles is to abandon an essential part of who, mm. who and what we are. Uh, we, we would cease to be what we are without, uh, but I think the same is true of, the, of the abandonment of the stories, that the story is just incidental, the, the, uh, the, the people are just incidental. So, but both have to be there, in my view, to, to really accurately reflect, right. not just what it should be, but what it is, what American patriotism is at its best. Let's talk a little bit about interacting with the past. Uh, you wrote, and I, I thought this was really interesting, you wrote, and I quote you here, the past does not speak for itself, and it cannot speak to us directly. We must first ask. It may have things to tell us that we have not yet thought to ask about, but it can be induced to address some of our questions if we learn to ask them rightly. So tell us what you mean by that, maybe what we should ask, and, and what does it mean to ask these questions rightly? Yeah. Well, part of the point I'm trying to make in that passage is that, uh, or I'm leading up to it, is that it, we should understand history, the study of history, as a reflective act, as something that in, is is not just the sort of digesting of inert facts, um, but um, a, a form of reflection on on who and what we are, where we're going, where we've been. What, what things uh, we we are we take root in and so on and and uh, 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 I think uh, uh, the the the, uh, the the quotation you read is uh, I mean a good example of what I'm talking about we must first ask is uh, um, on the question of slavery mm. um, I think of course there's a lot of different questions you could ask why. Did people like Thomas Jefferson, who actually uh, uh, opposed slavery, although he owned slaves and did not uh, in his lifetime part with them, unlike George Washington, who manumitted his slaves at his death. But um, uh, how, could people, how could people do that? How could the good Christians of South Carolina, uh, the, the uh, amazingly uh, intellectually uh, advanced uh, Protestant divines, uh, James Henley Thornwell and so on, who who uh, were theologically, could run rings around the Northerners. Um, how could they seriously have countenanced uh, this, the existence of this institution and, and seriously adduced the Bible as they did, as a, as a support for it? How could people have believed that? And for most students, it's it's 
too much of a stretch. Um, I think it's really important for them to try, try to understand how, uh, mostly by way of understanding how much our sensibilities have changed. Um, another way of getting at this question would be to ask, what was it that happened in the, the 18th century? To, now, you have to know a fair amount to be able to ask this right, question. Right. But uh, what was it that an institution, slavery, that had existed since time immemorial, that in every uh, developed society, including you know Greece and Rome, the ones that we tend to extol the most at that time, uh, how did it come to pass in the 18th century that you suddenly start to see serious movement towards uh, abolishing the institution of slavery and denouncing it as um, as an affront, as, as something not, not just an imperfection, um, uh, not, even, not even a regrettable evil, but as a loathsome sin that could not be tolerated, that was a stain upon the body politic. <clears throat> what, what happened to make that change? Um, and then I think that that's an interesting question. Right. Uh, it's actually one that I don't think historians are completely agreed about the answer, but there does seem to have been the emergence of a kind of what some have called humanitarian sensibility that um, is certainly grounded in Christianity, although it had not it had not existed <laughs> it had not flowed from Christianity in many centuries prior. So it's obviously got some sex, secular or extra-Christian uh, elements in it. Um, but it was led by Christians. That's the other interesting thing, is um, that I think even now a lot of scholars don't really quite grasp is that without evangelical Protestantism, um, and so it's not really, I wouldn't include the Catholic Church in this, it's really the Protestants, evangelicals, um, without them, there would not have been, at the time that it occurred, a slave, anti-slavery movement. There surely would have been something eventually, but they were the the um, leading edge. Uh, and it was people of religious commitment, uh, ferocious, zealous religious commitment. Uh, people like William Lloyd Garrison, mm -hmm. uh, who uh, who led the way, uh, and uh, uh, and and change the country's mind uh, uh, to some extent about, the, about that issue. So there is a, what I say in the book is there's a rev revolution in moral sensibility that comes about at the very time the United States was being founded. So you have people, if you think of, of a sort of cresting wave, there are people who are with the wave, there are people who are behind the wave. Right. Um, maybe a few people in front of the wave, but uh, it it's um, it's it's a process in motion. And when you have in the South a an economic system to, that <clears throat> generates enormous prosperity, uh, people are loath to give it up, even if it if it means blinding themselves to the wrongness of certain things. There's definitely a lesson for all of us in that. Uh, what blindnesses are we guilty of today, a comparable blindnesses? Uh, so um, 
this is this is what I mean when I say history is a reflective act. Um, it should involve us not only in asking fresh questions of the past, um, you know, uh, uh, such. Uh, I I would give an example, although this is not uh, not one of the themes of my book, but uh, um, you know, uh, it asking questions about the status of women. Hmm. Um, it it certainly is is in my book. It's not one of the great overriding themes, but uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, seventy five years ago, that wasn't a question a lot of historians were asking. Um, about the nature of slavery, I think the questions change constantly um, because that's something that is, has a sort of mirror image in the changing state of our own often troubled race relations. Um, but um, uh, again, I think that the nature of the things that we want from the past change changes uh, all the time. Um, uh, we we reach back to the past partly as uh, in the way that a that a wobbling person grabs hold of a rail uh, to steady uh, himself. Uh, uh, it 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 can provide that steadying influence. Um, you know, I often have conversations with students in which they say, "Oh, you know, this is things can't get any worse hmm. than they are right now," and I and I say. You've got to be kidding me! You know, you're unhappy because uh, there's somebody who's president you find unpleasant, and uh, the the alternatives to him are equally unpleasant. Uh, <laughs> welcome to history. Uh, uh, is this really uh, uh, the worst time in our national history? Uh, I the epigraph of the book uh, is a long quotation from John Dos Passos. Uh, the novelist, and uh, and and one of the things he says near the end of the quotation is that 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 having a sense of the of the the long reach of the past um, and a sense of connection to it helps uh, inoculate us or protect us from what he calls the idiot delusion of the exceptional now, uh, and uh, uh, the idiot delusion of the now now I think what he means idiot there. Those of you who studied Greek know that idios has a, a meaning that's different than our, our idiot. It's it's more like someone who is uh, completely uh, privatized, who lives in a in a sort of solipsistic world of their own. Um, and uh, uh, it's only later that the term idiot uh, is is sort of you know developed as a kind of quasi medical term. But the idiot delusion, the sort of self contained we would call it being in a bubble <laughs> living in a bubble uh the, the bubble inhabiting de delusion of the exceptional now that now he, he capitalizes now by the right. way, the end yeah. so like tom wolf you know <laughs> now uh uh the idiot delusion of the, of the exceptional now is the illusion that we are living in a time that is so different that there's no comparison. I mean, George Washington, he didn't have an iPhone. You know, forget it. I, I uh, yeah, <laughs> there's no comparison between ipso facto. I mean, no explanation necessary. Um, right. You hear that a lot with people when they're talking do. about the Constitution, and they say, well, "Yes, boy, how could that? Yeah, you know, why, why does this have any bearing on us today?" Yeah, 
Yeah. I think the example of the Constitution is a really interesting one because, um, uh, you know, that this view of the Constitution is over a century old, that, that it was an 18th century document. It was fine for the moment, but right. good heavens, the people, <laughs> let's not get carried away and make it into a sacred object. You know, this is what John Dewey and others would say. And uh, uh, and certainly Woodrow Wilson um we're sitting here at Princeton University, and I feel the presence of Woodrow Wilson <laughs> all over the place. Um, uh, so Woodrow Wilson saw the Constitution in that way. Um, but funny thing happened um, on the way to uh, the administrative state is that a lot of the founders' notions about the dangers of the concentration of power, the need for separation of powers, uh, and the all the, the things that make the Constitution such a slow operating document are starting to be appreciated better. The, the inability of administrative agencies to be uh, impartial and purely professional in the way that progressive reformers of the early part of the 20th century believed they would be. The fact that they too have interests, you know, uh, they, they, um, uh, uh, the, the whole economics of public choice, I think it's been a great uh, advance in that, in, 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 in uh, demonstrating how it is that, that public bureaucracies are not neutral arbiters. They have their own um, game, their own <laughs> interests to pursue. So maybe the founders' vision of countervailing powers of the Constitution as a sort of I call it a comp a conflict compact. That is, it it acknowledges and accepts the conflictual nature of human society, not least in a in a in a uh, republic, but uh, tries to min minimize the effects of factions and other other uh, forces that would undermine the cohesiveness of the whole uh, by um, you know an intricate. <laughs> Rube Goldberg mechanism <laughs> <laughs> that uh, it it does slow things down. Now I look. I'd be the first to say that um, we're a long way from uh, get, getting back to that initial right. vision. I think the sad state of the Congress uh, and its um, unwillingness to play its constitutional role in a serious and sustained way is it may be. Um, at least from my point of view, uh, uh, in, in, and I'm, I have no particular expertise about contemporary politics, but it does seem to be one of the areas that um, is is greatly in need of, you know, we have this uh, presidential obsession and have had at least since Franklin Roosevelt, this notion that the, the real leader of the country is this, this elected monarch. Right. Um, I'd like to see us get away from that. Uh, I don't know how we're going to, but... Uh, it seems the spirit of the Constitution is very much in line with uh, restricting uh, the legitimate exercise of the executive and uh, <clears throat> and the primacy of the legislative body. I don't think that we have that now. And so I'm not saying everything's hunky-dory, but uh, part of the reason we have that is because the progressive reforms that helped to build the administrative state... Um, are very hard to undo. Uh, right. uh, so let's hope in the, your generation, perhaps, will be the next to undo <laughs> it. 
Uh, well, with the help of Land of Hope, I'm I sure we'll so. be able to. Uh, you mentioned earlier the 1619 Project. And yeah. for those that aren't familiar with the 1619 Project, from the New York Times. Uh, and they say that the goal of the project is to tell our story truthfully uh, for the first time. And what they mean by that is to place slavery at the center of the American story. 1619, the year the first mm-hmm. slaves were brought. Yeah. Um, in the lead essay, Nicole Hannah-Jones writes that, our democracy's founding ideals were false when they were written. Now, we could ask you to go through point by point and debunk the 1619 Project, but I'm, I'm curious what you think the motivations are for a project like this. Now, that, I actually, is a question that's hard for me to answer. Uh, I, I know some of the things that uh, um, Hannah Jones has said publicly about it, um, and I'm not, I, while it would be fair to quote them, I think they're kind of, and serious, and, 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 and I think it's too, in a way too serious to just uh, you know, pick away at, because uh, other people at the Times have signed off on this, and they clearly um, think this is important. I, it, it, it's, I think, um, let, me, let me start here, but I, sure. I, th- I think some kind of recognition of, of 1619 is, is valuable, uh, and um, Presumably, now that we're in 2020, there will be a 1620 <laughs> devoted to the the, uh, the Pilgrims landing in, in Plymouth and, and all of that. And I think that's entirely appropriate. But I think here's what I think is especially value about the 1619 I, I, emphasis, um, not the way the Times did it, but if it had been done differently, is to remind people that not only is slavery part of the American part, slavery has been... Uh, a, a part of the American past, it has been with with us almost from the very beginning. Um, I mean, Jamestown is settled in 1607. That's usually when people start beginning the history of British North America. Mm-hmm. Um, so 1619 is not long after. Uh, there is some question, by the way, and I have to raise this because uh, the Times people glide right over it, but... Um, there's some question about whether the 20 or so Africans who were, who were left at Jamestown were slaves, uh, or rather in, better indentured described as servants. Yeah, servants. Yeah, sure. And I, I don't know that that's all that important a distinction, but um, it's, it's one that certain people, Nell Painter here at Princeton, insists on that distinction being made. Um, uh, and uh, it, it's sort of indicative of this sloppiness of the project that they just kind of glossed over that very crucial factual uh, detail. But leave, leave that aside. I think the, 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 the deeper point is, is right to make that um, the, the Americans of African descent have been here from the beginning. This is not, they are, they are part of the American story. They are not a, some kind of uh, add-on, some right. weird little yeah. epicycle. Right. Right. <laughs> um, that, and I think, and that slavery and their enslavement is part of that. So I think that part of it is, uh, is, is, uh, is, is not just justifiable, but I, but I would even say admirable. Um, but they weren't content to do that. They had to do something more. And, and this claim that it's the center of American history, the central fact that everything that makes America exceptional, its wealth, it's republicanism, it's uh, uh, belief in individual rights, you know, you could go on and on. Every single uh, aspect of American life 
is ultimately grounded in slavery. That's that is too big a claim, right? And it's such a grotesquely inflated claim that it serves to discredit the elements of the claim that are good and are valid, such as what I've already mentioned. So I think it's a great missed opportunity. It's a misfire. It's um, and I don't. I don't. I think ultimately, uh, the Times, which shows no signs of backing away uh, from from what it's done, um, even under some fairly rigorous fire from Princeton's own uh, Sean Willens and 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 a number of other historians of equal uh, rank and distinction, Gordon Wood. Uh, may arguably the greatest living American historian, James McPherson, also mm-hmm. Princeton. Princeton's very involved in Alan this. Gelzo, also uh, Alan also, Gelzo, uh, yes, indeed, member of the James All, Madison also program. Also Princeton person. So, um, uh, it and and they've objected in the most strenuous way to various misrepresentations that uh, the Times treatment of the subject uh, has made. Um, so I I wish. That the Times would, I think everybody would be happy if the Times would just sort of quietly back away from it, but they aren't. Um, I I didn't watch the Oscars the other night, but I I <laughs> told I. that that, and I saw the they they ran an ad for the sixteen nineteen project in the Oscars. <laughs> what was that all about? <laughs> well, I think it's indicative that they they have they do not care what the scholarly community says about this. They care about the sort of Hollywood public relations value of this. Um, and that's deeply troubling uh, uh, for, um, in terms of the integrity of, of uh, the, the newspaper that used to be thought of as the paper of record in this country. So uh, I think when you asked the question a while back about what was behind it, that, that, that's the thing that comes to my mind is that they're not really, it's really um, a, a political thing uh, more than it is uh, in the larger sense of political, although it may also have to do with the 2020 elections. Um, hmm. uh, I don't know. I can't read their minds, but um, I, 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 I suspect that um, that's a big part of it. Um, uh so um yeah i'm 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 really sorry it happened this way i think it's it's uh it's y- you know one of my biggest objections and this is just as a citizen and not as a historian but um i do not think african americans need yet another reason to feel that they're cut off from the promise of american life yeah. and this does that yeah that's right that's um, right it it it, it, it in effect says they even use the by now rather hackneyed DNA analogy. I wish mm-hmm. we could strike the whole <laughs> DNA. It's in the DNA, <laughs> particularly since we're at the point now of altering DNA. But uh, but this uh, is an interesting point when they say it's in the DNA. If something's in the DNA, you say now yeah. now we're getting scientific well, we're, advances. We're not there we can, yet, but we're right. getting there. But DNA, this this you can't change. Right, this needs to right. be thrown without, out without some semi miraculous intervention. Right. Um, no, that's right, and and it's 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 a hopeless vision, uh, and of course, as the author of a book called Land of Hope, I don't want <laughs> <laughs> I don't want that. But uh, can I say a few words about that title? By the way, yeah, I, please I, I, please I, do because I, I think that's important. Um, uh, I wanted to convey 
something that I think is very special about America. And I, I don't, I don't use the word exceptional because I don't, I, I don't feel I know enough about all the other countries of the world to know that we're an exception <laughs> to them in every respect. But it's something special, and that is, I think, we are. It is, it is uh, built into our, <laughs> our culture, not our DNA, <laughs> but, but, but into the momentum of our culture for us to be an aspirational people. We are, and I hope for me, has, it has a secular meaning, it has a religious, spiritual meaning, but it, I think in, in every case to be, to be hopeful, to live by and in hope, is to, be, to not be content with the conditions into which one is but born or in which one is placed to the given um, and to aspire to more, to, to, to never to accept the conditions of our birth. You know, you're the son, you're the son of, a, of a grocer and you'll be a grocer or a you know, farmer or whatever. Um, uh, not that that's, that's anything ignoble about those occupations in the least, but, but the notion that we um, are limited to that, which is a very old world idea, that does not obtain in America. America is, we've had an elective affinity for people who have wanted to come from their various old worlds, to, and it's still happening, uh, to test their mettle um, uh, in, uh, in, in, in this sort of fluid land of great opportunity and risk to be a land of hope is also to be a land that you know opens itself up to the possibility of failure. We have we have very high ideals; they're not lies. Uh, uh, they they're very hard to achieve. I mean, ideals are uh, uh, almost by definition never entirely realized. Mm. Uh, uh, so, uh, but but that that they are ideals and that they remain fixed is much more valuable to us and much more indicative of who we are than to say they were lies and we should just dispense with even referring to them because uh, the only reality is is power and power relations well if they really believed that they wouldn't bother uh publishing things that are meant to um uh, activate people's consciences. They don't. They don't really believe right, that. Right. They really believe those ideals implicitly. They believe those ideals are there to be appealed to, because uh, otherwise, what would be the point? Uh, uh, so I, when I say land of hope, I mean, I, and this is a little bit fanciful, I admit, but um, I, I uh, say, you know, it's really, I think, an interesting fact that the Western Hemisphere. Is uh, so far as we know, and we believe uh, we believe this at this point in our knowledge of archaeology and such that uh, that there are no native peoples. There was no n people who are native to who who can are not traceable back to origins from outside the Western Hemisphere. You know, the first we think the first Americans came, you know, over the Bering Strait um, thirty forty thousand years ago, something like that. Um, and uh, filtered down, and and uh, but they they too something, and this is where I say it's fanciful because we ha who knows what withdrew them. But I, I think it had to be either 
<laughs> there was a push factor or there was a pull factor or a combination of them. But uh, certainly by the time we get to the Norse explorers coming from the other direction, they, we know that they were adventurers and explorers right. and interested in creating um, you know, colonies and settlements and uh, uh, trying for the new thing, you know, and giving them names like Greenland to places that weren't very green. <laughs> uh, but uh, all is an effort to kind of uh, uh, not settle for the things as given, but to keep to push back. Um, so it, it is, I seems to me, a, a, a trait that, um, however fanciful my conjuring of the beginning of it all may be, uh, follows us through. Um, and it follows through even those who are very disappointed in, in America. I think we have, you know, the, the Hannah uh, uh, Nicole Jones uh, uh, or Nicole, Nicole Hannah, <laughs> yeah. um, you know that that there's a kind of residual hope um, that uh, that America can be made better. You know, Langston Hughes has a great poem about this that uh, about uh, uh, America becoming what it once was, mm -hmm. uh, and it turns out to be a very complicated poem. But uh, I think it's very expressive of the way that. For the, those who you could say the one exception to my land of hope uh, image is those who were brought in bondage, uh, but even they they participate in this hope. They participate. You know, even the sorrow songs of the slaves are full of the hope of redemption. That you know that derived from the master's religion. You know, uh, from the story of uh, of the of the of the Jews. Uh, uh, being delivered from uh, slavery in Egypt right. to the promised land. And uh, uh, so uh, and I think you see in Hughes, in Ralph Ellison and other great African-American writers, you, you see this, um, even Du Bois, I think you see this, this sort of tangled yet persistent character of hope. Hmm. So uh, I, I thought more than... Um, any material or religious, although this is both material and religious hope, uh, more th there's this, this disposition in our character towards striving, mm. towards, uh, as we say, making something of yourself. That's right. Uh, uh, and uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of our commonplace expressions like that that reveal where we're coming from. The book is Land of Hope. An Invitation to the Great American Story. It's a beautiful book. Oh, it's a beautiful you. book and a, a real contribution. The publisher did a great job with it, I have to say. Uh, th that's right. And we'll have a, a link to the book, which is from Encounter Books, in the show notes. And uh, Dr. Bill McClay, thank you. Thank you very much for having me, Nino. Well, there you have it. I had a great time talking with Dr. McClay back before the coronavirus lockdown. And I hope to have him back with us sometime soon. I'll just add that Dr. McClay's quote about America being both an idea with a people and a people with an idea comes from an interview he did several months ago with none other than my wonderful undergraduate advisor, Dan Cullen. Uh, so I'll put a link to that in the show notes in case you'd like to hear some more from Dr. Bill McClay. That does it for us today. Thanks for joining us here on Madison's Notes. Madison's Notes.